Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the prophecy of Hosea. I do have all of chapter 4 there printed for you. That will be the focus of our study. I'll confess that when you are preparing uh, messages from the prophets, uh, you can get depressed reading the cycle of sin. And I'm sure there's a reason why you don't hear the prophets exposited often in church today. In fact, Sherry and I, our church in St. Louis, our dear pastor there who is now with the Lord, uh, went through the book of Jeremiah while we were there, uh, verse by verse. And every week it was, what was the sin of Judah that week? But the answer was always the same. Christ is the remedy. From beginning to end. So I don't want us to lose this as we search through this wonderful prophet Hosea. In fact, Hosea is derivative of Joshua, the name which is salvation. It's it's a constant reminder that ultimately Christ is the answer for these sins, even though it can become depressing when we see our humanity displayed in our spiritual counterparts, the church in the Old Testament. It continually points us back to Christ, or in this case, ahead to Christ. Now, let's gain our bearings before I begin reading Hosea 4. This book can be divided into two parts. Chapters 1 through 3 give us the analogy of God and his people. The analogy is with Hosea the prophet and Gomer, his adulterous wife. Everything about that marriage, which I believe to be a real marriage, depicts what was happening between God and his people. God's people were committing adultery against God by going after other gods. The chief sin, at least the presenting problem, was they were trying to syncretize all the cultural religions that were around. They were not irreligious. They were not atheists. They were not people who uh, didn't care about worship. No, they did all those things. They just did them with a little bit from the Canaanite culture, a little bit from the Assyrian culture, a little bit from this culture, that culture. And it can all mean the same thing. They syncretized all the religions, and in so doing, committed adultery against the one true living God to whom they were married. That's the sin of God's people at this time. It's syncretism. It's saying it's all the same. Does that sound familiar to you? It should. In fact, this book may be 2,700 years old, but people are still the same. Our propensities are still the same. And there's still only one answer. Christ. We'll see this as we study. Starting now in chapter 4, Hosea lays out the case against his people, God's people. Uh, 1 through 3 gives us the analogy, kind of gives us the whole message of Hosea. Remember, he ministered over a 60-year period. Now, chapters 4 through 14 give us the details or the content of the teaching that he was giving to the people of the northern kingdom. Hear God's word as Hosea delivers it. Chapter 4. The entire chapter. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse. For with you is my contention, 
O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply. Because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which, make, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn, burn offerings on the hills under oaks, poplar, and terebinth, because of their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to beth Aven, And swear not, as the Lord lives, like a stubborn heifer, Israel, is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in the broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings. And they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Let us pray. Lord, these are hard words as we read them and difficult to understand in many ways. Pray that you would enlighten our minds uh, with your spirit, using your word. I pray that we would be transformed. Lord, I pray that we would see the 2,700 years as just a blip and realize how similar uh, these propensities and these possibilities can be for us and that we would learn and that we would bring glory to you as we cling to the cross anew, hearing of our sin, but also seeing the remedy. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We praise in your name. Amen. When a school principal does a teacher evaluation, what do they do? They go into the class and they stand in the back. Or they sit in the back. And they observe. Now, a teacher is with his or her students all day, every day. How can one evaluate just after an hour, an hour and a half, right? Well, there are things that the principal can note. But probably, first and foremost, how orderly is it? What's the style employed? How are the students engaged? What is the atmosphere? They can tell just by looking at that very much about the ones who are leading the classroom. Recently, Sherry and I went through the process of a home study, something you have to have if you're going to adopt a child or be a foster care parent. It's pretty intrusive as far as the amount of questions and examination. It takes months to really go through the whole process, and it culminates with them sending a caseworker to your house. Now, in our case, we have three kids already. So when they come into the house, there's a touch of concern, just a touch on the part of the parents, of what they might see or what they might derive, because we realize that there's really no way that a caseworker can come into our house for a two-hour period, and you could, you could hide a lot of stuff, right? It's tougher when you've got three little ones there, 
we know what they're really doing when they come, because we've answered all the questions and we've gone through all the process, all the background checks and everything. What they're really doing is getting a temperature on the atmosphere of the house, because they know, and rightfully so, that atmosphere will tell you a lot about the leadership of the house itself. Praise God, that day is over. We got through. When you read Hosea chapter 4, you will be able to take the temperature, the spiritual state of God's people at that time, and you'll get some distinct impression about what's happening with the leadership. I am consistently reminded every time I read Scripture and God confronts us with our sin by way of leading us to repentance, He always, always, always starts with leadership. Chapter 4 certainly shows this. And we see what the atmosphere is like. We can get an idea of what's happening with the leadership. What we learn in the first verse is that there is an official indictment against God's people here. Look at the first verse. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Chapters 1 through 3 depict the whole message of the prophet. Chapter 4 is like the official indictment penned by a skilled trial lawyer so that the people might see what it is that God is calling them to repent of. Now, we know, as a result of what history has taught us, that the nation as a whole went on into judgment. But recognize, whenever the prophets write, that there are pockets and there are people who will respond in repentance. And that's always true. No matter how gloomy and doomy you may feel about the church and the world, recognize that God calls pockets of revival consistently and constantly through history. So there are people here, even in the northern kingdom, that would be called to repentance because of the message they hear. So it comes in an official indictment form. And then what we see in the first three verses kind of gives us a flavor or of the atmosphere of the church in this day. And we learn that unfaithful teaching from God's chosen ministers causes widespread spiritual turmoil. Understand, people are responsible. Ultimately, brothers and sisters, it's not that if, if I mislead you, it's not that God will only look at me and judge me. That will happen. But individuals, you'll be culpable too as well for continuing to follow that unfaithfulness. But at a very foundational level, it begins with unfaithful teaching. That is the fundamental problem in Hosea's day with the church, as we'll see. There was not only the acceptance of syncretism, that belief that I spoke of earlier, where everything is just the same, but there was a promotion of it on the part of those who are supposed to differentiate for the people what God's law is, what God's word is. There are very clear signs of ill spiritual health. Look at the first three verses as it begins to give us a flavor of uh, the atmosphere of the day. After this indictment in the first part of verse 1, look at the second part of verse 1. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. Uh, those words are used to be synonymous. No faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Faithfulness or steadfast love. What this means, these are synonymous terms meant to mean there is no commitment to the true God. There is no steadfastness. There's no faithfulness to the God. Which God? The God who brought them out of Egypt. The only true God. There's no faithfulness. It's gone. Further, there's no knowledge of God. In other words, all the spiritual talk, really there's no knowledge of the true God. Because they're ignoring what's been revealed about God, what they had of the Bible, what's been revealed to the prophets, in favor of this idea that it's all a little bit true. And that's a, a caution for us today. We live in a very spiritual age, spiritual culture. We'll talk about spirituality 
All manner of talk show hosts and radio people and computer gurus will talk about a spiritualism. And it sounds good on the surface because it's not atheism. It's not utter modernism that just casts off the idea of God. But it's subtly dangerous because it so blurs things that it keeps people away from the revelation of God in Scripture into this sense of who God is. And in essence, we have no knowledge of God for real. Talk of spirituality, but no real knowledge of God. This is the case in this day. This is the atmosphere we see. Look at verse 2. Further depiction of what this spirit has led to. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. So we see that there is a habitual breaking of these commandments. It's not that someone lied once or swore once. It's a habitual way of life. Why do we know this? Because it says they break all bounds. In other words, the bounds that are described here are the commandments of God. They break all bounds. They cast off restraint. They drop the yoke of God's burden on them, and they do what they want, the way they feel. That's what they do. That means there will be swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. Notice that there is an explicit reference, and again, this has that legal covenantal terminology. Uh, Hosea writes as one who is alerting people that they have broken covenant. God officially makes covenant with them, and now they're breaking covenant. And he won't just say it in general. He'll give them specific ways. And then he, he lists here a breaking of the third, the sixth, the seventh, and the ninth commandment very clearly. So they knew, they knew uh, from a distant past uh, what these commands were, and when the the words came back, they would recognize what the prophet's doing uh, as God's mouthpiece. He's saying, you've broken these explicitly, and there would be obvious ways in which this could be shown. They break all bonds. They shake God's authority. They make their own rules. They answer to no one. The only one that matters is them. The universe circles around them and their pleasures and what they want and their desires. You should only restrain yourself if you want to. That's the mindset. They were wrapped in themselves. Really, this is a depiction of what we call hedonism, the whole idea that you just you pursue your own pleasures. Uh, and think about how this works. It seems all well and good uh, that you do what makes you feel right, good, and just don't hurt anyone else is what you say at first. But if you really pursue what only makes you feel right, eventually you're going to cross someone who might stop you from feeling the way you want or having the experience you want to have, and you're going to have to do something uh, to manipulate them or change them or run them over so you could do what you want to do. So if people are all living this way with no restraint, uh, what they'll eventually do is violate one another. Uh, they'll murder. They'll lie against each other. They'll swear against God uh, in order for them to lie before their fellow man. They'll steal. They'll covet. They'll do all the things that are indicative of one who is not united to God through Christ. This is what it looked like. Look at verse 3, what the result was. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. So this prosperity that they enjoyed at the beginning of Hosea's ministry is starting to languish, and they're starting to lose some of those, those blessings that were theirs as part of God's discipline coming upon them. I believe that there is a sober warning uh, to us in the church today from what we see here. I think that people who are identified as God's church in a given place have to be much more about influencing that culture than having that culture influence it. Now, I am not suggesting in any way, brothers and sisters, that we're supposed to separate from the culture in such a way that we just do our little thing over here in this building and let everything else just unfold the way it is and let the terrible sinners out there just really just go to hell. That's what we should let them do. Not at all. 
But we have to be realistic about how easy it can be to be taken hold of by uh, some of these philosophies and thinkings and the syncretistic worldview that just says, everything's all right, don't judge me, I won't judge you, just do your thing. Uh, That's what God calls spiritual harlotry for the people of God. And we are not actually helping the world by being something different than God's people. The best thing we can do for the culture is be God's people. That's how God will then bring transformation to the culture itself. Back to our text. We can see the atmosphere, what's happening, the casting on, casting off of God's yoke, you might say. Let's look now at the bulk of the passage in the middle, where we have this clear indictment against the leaders. The people are culpable, no doubt, but the initial responsibility for the corporate spiritual adultery that happens rests with ordained leadership. It always does. In fact, uh, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that people are responsible. Jeremiah speaks, though, of the unfaithful shepherds. Jeremiah also says that the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their discretion. My people love to have it so. So there's a sense in which the people let it happen, but there's a clear focus and a clear culpability on the part of the leaders. Look at verse 4. Let, yet, let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. So after stating this case, kind of like a Perry Mason movie, you know, he states his case and then he turns to the witness, and you, that's what he does. He states the case in the first three verses and then turns to the witness on the stand and says, it's you. Kind of like that picture when, you remember when Esther's telling uh, the king, about this terrible person who is uh, seeking to kill her people, and she abruptly stops and says, and Haman is the one. That's what we have here. My contention is with you, O priest, first. You should know better, is what he's saying. Verse 5, you shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. This doesn't mean his literal mother. This means uh, the nation itself, the church, if you will. I'll break it down. The the one you are to serve, the one you are to help advance, I will destroy as a result of your unfaithfulness. I will destroy your mother. A reference clearly to this corporate entity. In verse 6 it says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. How many times have you heard that verse taken out of context? My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. It's not just any knowledge, it's knowledge of God that's being spoken of here. That's just the pursuit of nebulous knowledge or just stuff or information. It's knowledge of God and His law in particular. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Why? Because you have rejected knowledge. At a base level, a foundation level, the ones ordained to teach it have rejected it. How do we know they are to teach it? Back in Deuteronomy 33, when God was ordaining the priesthood, listen to what is said in Deuteronomy 33.10. They shall teach Jacob your rules in Israel, your law. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. The role of the priests were to preach and teach the law of God and offer the sacrifices as a picture to the sacrifice of Christ's coming. Very similarly today, pastors, elders in the church are to preach and teach the word of God and administer the sacraments, the visible reminder of the work of Christ on a regular basis. This is their task. But it says that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. In verse 6. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. You see, they have rejected knowledge is put synonymously with forgetting the law of God. 
People are destroyed because they don't know God's word. That's what it says. This is key. Verse 6 is key to the whole book. Why are the people in such desperate straits? Because there is a lack of knowledge of God's word. That's powerful. Last week, those of you who were able to come and be part of the ordination of Brian Huff, uh, heard those vows taken again. And every time I hear them, it's like when you go to a wedding and you hear the vows again and you're like, man, when I was that young and we got married, I don't know if I really remember, if I knew what those vows meant. Then you hear them said again and there's a sense of, of awe that comes over you, the responsibility. Well, every time I am part of an ordination, I think the same thing. And I think of the, the great weight that is upon those who are ordained by God to lead the people of God and how closely connected the spiritual vitality of the church is to the faithfulness of the elders of the church. I think in America we don't have much trouble with just not thinking that way. We don't think that highly of the clergy anymore because, for good reason, the clergy has lost a lot of our confidence in many ways. But you see, God hasn't stopped putting clergy in that place of responsibility, whether people acknowledge it or not. It's tied closely together. I read a couple of verses to Brian to encourage him, but it reminds me of the seriousness of leaders in the church and how this directly affects our spiritual health. Uh, Paul's writing to Timothy and he says this, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's a powerful statement about an elder in the church and their task. So when they stop teaching, when they stop tending to these things that God has ordained them to, the people perish for lack of knowing them. Towards the end of Hebrews, the writer says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teaching, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What a powerful picture of the task of the teacher, of the leader, of the, the ordained pastor, elder. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge. Look at verse 7 as it continues. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. This is uh, referring to their increasing in worldly things. As as they got bigger and more popular or had more stuff, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. You see, as long as they gave indulgence to the people and did not confront the people with God's word they would be made more prosperous. They would gain from the sin of the people by turning another eye or participating in whatever it is they were doing. And look at verse 9. What a powerful passage. And it shall be like people, like priests. will look like our leaders. That's how it will be. Verse 10, they shall eat, but will not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply. In other words, they'll go after stuff, but it'll never bring satisfaction. God will, in a sense, give us over 
because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away my understanding. And there's a clear reference here to the syncretism that's going on, the, the taking on of other religions. Verse 12, my people inquire of a piece of wood, you know, some statue or some idol that the nations gave them. And their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. Please make no mistake that when we speak in terms of equating other things with the true and living God, God does not view that as, as somehow accepting or loving. He views that as whoredom. That's what it is. It's turning away from the true and living God to something that's false. It depicts what they do. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills, under the oaks, the poplar, the terebinth, because their shade is good. The sacrificial system was the, the ultimate picture of the coming sacrifice for them, and they had made this just, just an act of convenience, if it could be. And it, it wasn't even the kind of sacrifice that was prescribed. It was in the context of these cultic temples. That's what's described in the second part of verse 13. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore nor your brides when they commit adultery. Why will he not? Because the men do the same thing is what he's saying. I'm not just going to focus on the sin of the women here when the sin of the men is as bad. In fact, it's worse because in verse 14, the second portion, it says, the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And a people without understanding shall come to ruin. They've not known the word of God because you've not taught them. And now they have all manner of sin has crept in. And I'm going to let it run its course. Matthew Henry says this about God letting sin run its course. When sinners cast off the easy yoke of Christ, they go on in sin till the Lord saith, let them alone. Then they receive no more warnings, feel no more convictions. Satan takes full possession of them and they ripen for destruction. It is a sad and sore judgment for any man to be let alone in sin. Those who are not disturbed in their sin will be destroyed for their sin. May we be kept from this awful state, Henry writes, for the wrath of God, like a strong tempest, will soon hurry in impenitent sinners to ruin. Each person certainly will give an account for their own sin, but the initial responsibility is upon the ordained leadership of God's church. Uh, we ask Brian these questions, and I think of them often myself. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as originally given to be the inerrant word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? Brothers, sisters, if your pastor doesn't say this, go somewhere else. Have you been induced, as far as you know, by your own heart to seek the office of the holy ministry from love to God and a sincere desire to promote his glory and the gospel of his son? Do you promise to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace of the church? Whatever persecution or opposition may arise unto you on that account. We read that vow in America and it just kind of goes off. But there are many people taking this vow will bring persecution upon themselves immediately. That has to be the vow of the one ordained in leadership of God's church. Are you now willing to take charge of this church, agreeable to your declaration when accepting their call? Do you now, relying upon God for strength, promise to discharge it to it, the duties of pastor? Brothers, sisters, please pray for me. Pray for us, the elders of the church. Pray that we love you so much that we would be faithful to do our best to speak the truth to you, even when it hurts. Pray that we would not be lazy. Pray that we would not succumb to the spirit of the age. Pray that we would not lust for wealth. Pray that we would not lust for acceptance. Pray that we would not lust for power or popularity. Pray that we teach you the whole counsel of God, no matter what the earthly cost. Pray that we would never forsake the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
You know what happens when this runs amok? The last verses, the last four verses, starting at verse 15, shows us how the spiritual and moral decay spreads. The prophet's giving this prophecy, then turns from the northern kingdom, which is gone in essence, and turns to the southern kingdom, Judah, which is still existent. The temple's still there. The Davidic king is still on the throne. There's a sense of of revival that can still happen. Unlike the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom did have a few godly kings. And uh, there's a turn now in verse 15 to Judah. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Speaking to the southern kingdom, enter nor into Gilgal, nor up to Beth-Avon, and swear not as the Lord lives. He's saying to the southern kingdom, I hope you see what's happening up here. Don't do this, says to Judah. Don't do this. This is an example of what will happen when the teachers are unfaithful and the people go without any yoke of Christ on them. Don't go this way, is what he's saying. And I hope that as you and I sit here today and we think, and you come from varying backgrounds, I know some of you are here because the church you were at before has forsaken these things. None of us should think we could be any different if we are not aware. We're not careful. We should look to those as examples. Examples of, quite frankly, apostasy and say, don't go there. And that should be a warning to us, just the way it was to Judah in this day, to see its northern counterpart go the way of Baal. It says, enter not into Gilgal or go up to Beth-Avon. What is this referring to? Very interestingly, Gilgal is a place that was renowned for idolatry in Israel. But it's also the place where Elisha was at one time, too. It's a sacred place now turned to an idolatrous place in the northern kingdom, to Judah. Don't go that way. Don't go the way of idolatry. Leave spiritual faithfulness and go to spiritual unfaithfulness. Beth-Avon's even more interesting because there's no such city. It's a city the prophet called Beth-Avon because it used to be Bethel, the house of God. Now, it's the house of deceit. That's what Beth-Avon means. Don't go to the place Bethel that was sacred. It's now the house of deceit. Don't go that way. See it for what it is and avoid it. Go away from it. Turn from it. Don't get too close to those sinful practices. It will spread. Verse 16, like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. You know, a, a, a cattle can stand out on a field and be somewhat resistant to predators, just standing there, not paying attention to anything, eating. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? can't treat them like they're children when they expose themselves in this way. Ephraim is joined to idols. Ephraim is uh, synonymous to the northern kingdom, to Israel. Is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Go. He's joined. He has left me. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. There's a way for repentance for the person in the northern kingdom, no doubt, who hears this message. And the way of repentance, quite frankly, here in this day, would be to go to Judah. To go to where the true sacrifices were being made. To go where God has preached. And today, think of ways in which we have to consistently assess who we are, what we're doing, and how are we faithful. And be honest about that. And there is a time and place where you do separate. You do say, we cannot be part of that. Now, take this from the corporate level that I'm speaking of here, and clearly this is very corporate in its sense. But I want you to think of how this really does apply very closely to your own family life. Just the way in which you're training your children. Are they learning the word from a young age to where they are strong, like it's Sunday night is called, these warriors for God? Because they are armed with the word of God. And 
Are we praying for a new generation of ordained leaders, of pastors and elders to come up from the midst here, to be faithful, to carry it on? When the culture does this, will they stay steady with the word? Are we raising up a generation like this? I could tell you that the leadership is doing everything possible we could think of to promote this in the church. We didn't start a school just to have a school. It's very proactive, not reactive. We didn't do it because we think everything's going bad out there. We did it because we think God called us to train a generation of people who rightly handle the word of truth. Because when the culture does disintegrate further, those who will be looked to for answers will be the only ones that have the real answer and will be ready for that. To take our place of leadership. To bring the culture back up. This takes long-term planning. There's no quickness about this. This is just having a club on some night and have kids memorize a few verses and think we'll take the culture back. This is a whole life. It's everything we do. It's a sober reminder in Hosea. And I don't want to leave you in any way depressed because the picture, the pattern of the way God works is that as His people are called to repentance and their lives change, He always uses the church in that setting to change the place. I mean, every major evil that has been washed away in cultures can be tied back to, in some way, some revival in the church. And if I had more time today, I'd show you how. Consistently, is God working through his people and changing them for all our sins to change the culture that it's part of. Brothers and sisters, that is my prayer every day for you. That wherever God has you, in your homes, in your workplace, your neighborhoods, in our church, in the things we do as a church corporately, that we partner with across the globe, that God would use us to change this place. It doesn't take that much salt to make a huge flavor difference. Let's see that happen. Let's not be depressed by what we see happening to the people of God. Let's confess where we need to confess and rely upon God's strength in Christ to be changed and be changers. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Hosea 4. I thank you that Hosea 14 will come also which reminds us of the ultimate fulfillment of these things and the restoration that comes in Christ. In the meantime, Lord, give us a sobriety about our reflection. Give us an encouragement about what you're doing. And give us an initiative to go out and do, to change, to be different, to see change happen. Lord, we pray for this culture that we're part of. We want to see it redeemed for Jesus. Lord, but we confess it starts right here. The acknowledgement of our own sin. A recommitment as such to our Savior. And Lord, our whole life being affected by it. Lord, help our leaders guide and direct us. Keep the elders of this church faithful. Raise up another generation of leaders to follow. Lord, do this for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.